Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. We're continuing chapter 8, and this is part 20 of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 8 continued. I am disappointed. I thought I could claim a day or two at 200 miles per day on the way down to the equator, so I set to to calculate the start-to-finish great circle distance for the three best days. I did not need to proceed far. I could see, at a glance, that the distance was nowhere near 600 for the three days of the 22nd to the 25th of March. The best day only just scraped into the 200 class. It had a change of latitude from 12 degrees 32 minutes north to 9 degrees 11 minutes north, which is at least 200 miles. Good Friday, 9th of April. During the night, something unusual happened. I had a solid sleep of four and a half hours. This was after making a cup of peppermint tea at 3 a.m., when I decided to set more sail. However, I was sitting on the step in the galley section, looking for a piece of nylon cord, when something hit the side of the boat with a bang and knocked me sideways. At first I assumed it was a wave, though nothing came aboard, but later decided it was a squall which had struck Gypsy Moth out of the blue. It blew up to 30 knots for a minute or two, and then settled back to 23 knots. The upshot was that no more sail was set, and back to the bunk I went, with the peppermint tea. The days seemed so short. My Good Friday chores included making a plotting chart because I had nothing satisfactory for this area of the ocean. Then I had to work out the distance home and forecast an ETA. There was a deck agenda to prepare and the time had come to jettison the remainder of my eggs. They had done me well with two visits to the tropics during the four months since they were loaded on board. and It was amazing how well they had kept considering that they had only been greased with Vaseline and there was no refrigerator or even an icebox on board. A fridge would use up too much fuel on a long journey. Now a big proportion of the remaining eggs were off, and it turned me up, opening them one by one until I found one which seemed good, and then only seemed good because it did not smell bad but just very doubtful. I had a remarkable supply of dried fruits and nuts left, thanks to Sheila's careful victualling, and these would give me ample protein. There were still squalls about as we ran north, ugly-looking, darkish clouds, but small. It seemed that Gypsy Moth was running into a belt of turbulence at the edge of the trade wind zone, where the trade wind overflows its banks, so to speak, and mixes with the colder air alongside. I wish we used that lovely French word for trade wind, la alise, which seems so well to express their nature when in one of their benevolent, fine, light breeze moods. Gypsy Moth's heading was slowly swinging round and veering eastward for home. It was now northeast by north. It is true that, after deducting magnetic variation, this became only 018 degrees, but until recently the wind had been pushing Gypsy Moth west of north. Of course, if it were not for the pounding, the heading could have been made much more easterly, but 60 degrees off the wind created all the trouncing and heel that was tolerable, and by the 10th of April, Gypsy Moth was at position 22 degrees north, 55 degrees west, out of the squall zone, and I was able to head up to windward, 
changing course from 010 to 055, which was 45 degrees off the apparent wind. The next day, Sunday the 11th of April, was Sheila's birthday, which Gypsy Moth celebrated with a fix-to-fix -fix run of 182 miles from a distant sail of 200. There were only 2,802 miles to Plymouth, where Sheila would meet me, and after I finished my navigation at about 3 o'clock, I sat in the cockpit in the afternoon sun and drank a toast to her with a small bottle of champagne. I also wished happiness to Edward and Belinda Montague, who were married on this same date, and they and Sheila have what is now almost a tradition of holding a party together. It was wonderful, sitting in the sun in perfect sailing conditions, thinking of them and Gypsy Moth's home in Edward's Bewley River, with Gypsy Moth herself gliding along at seven and a half knots, fairly close hauled. This is the most lovely part of the oceans that I know. It has a peaceful, happy, relaxed atmosphere, which I dare say is unique, and would make it an ideal place for one's soul to take off if it wished to leave the earth. The only thing to mar my day was not being able to get through on the radio telegraph to Sheila that evening to wish her many happy returns. I had trouble throughout the voyage trying to make radio contact with the BBC, the Observer and my family. I hated the necessity to make the calls, however worthy the object, because they always seemed to be booked for a time when navigation or gypsy moth desperately needed my attention. There was another serious aspect to it all in that because of the battery time spent in my abortive attempts to get through, I had been using fuel for charging the batteries in a way I had never anticipated. I had stocked up at Bluff with what I thought would be sufficient for my usage, but I was making great inroads into it. By the 13th of April, the distance to Plymouth was 2,474 miles, and I was reading up the sailing directions for the clippers, which were recommended to cross the 40th meridian at 40 degrees north latitude in winter and 44 degrees north from April on. I had been planning to cross it at 36 degrees north, and hoped that I was not trying to be too clever, as I was when going round the world in Gypsy Moth 4. I had thought that, in a modern yacht, I could do better than the clippers by sailing closer to the wind than they could, but I flopped badly. Their law on ocean passages was the result of thousands of voyages, and afterwards I read that the Cutty Sark's fastest point of sailing was 45 degrees off the apparent wind, which is closer winded than Gypsy Moth 5 can sail in a rough sea. As we made our northing and the weather grew colder, or rather less hot, I dug out my sleeping bag from the afterpeak and hunted up some shirts and warm clothes. The Wharfie's long oilskin coat, which I was given in Sydney in 1966, came into its own again for the nights as well as the hard weather days. The fashionable, short, oily smock is a genuine bum freezer unless oilskin trousers are put on as well, whereas with the long coat I can sit or kneel on the cockpit seats to work the leeward winches, which I have to do because the seats are so broad without getting my pyjama trousers wet, and it is a single piece of clothing I can slip on quickly instead of two I struggle into with difficulty. If only the long coat had a neck fastening to keep the rain and spray from going down my neck, I should use it even more than I do. Three days later, on the 16th, my position was 32 degrees 56 minutes north, 43 degrees 35 minutes west, and I had only 2,038 miles to sail to Plymouth. It was also the day on which my troubles started. During the afternoon, I heard the motor cough and stop. It started again, but I checked how much fuel was left and the gauge showed empty. Owing to the heel, there was likely to be some in the tank, but it could not be much. Of course, my batteries only needed charging for the lights and the radio telegraph, but they were important. 
sailing into the English Channel single-handed, with only feeble oil lamps and no navigation light, and more than a thousand steamers a day going to and from, is criminal, unless watch is kept all night. I jibbed at staying on watch all night, as well as working and watching all day. I decided to put into Horta in the Azores for more fuel, and that evening one of the Portishead operators relayed a message to Sheila, asking her to telegraph Peter Azevedo, who, with his father, runs the Café Sport at Horta, warning him of my arrival. Peter is a sort of nautical Kim, a friend to all the yacht-cruising world. I dug out paraffin bottles from the undercity cubby holes, hunted up hurricane lamps from the afterpeak, the cockpit bin, and a third one from beside the chart table, filled and cleaned the lamps and trimmed the wicks, and filled the bottles with reserve paraffin. I was depressed and at first quite taken aback that I should be so low on fuel through my carelessness. However, I got three lamps lighted, and I felt I had had enough for the day, but it was not so. After the RT session, on looking at the steering compass with a torch, I found that Gypsy Moth was not heading close enough to the wind, and I changed the setting of the wind vane. Presently, I found that she was still not pointing high enough, and I gave the vane a fresh twist. There was still no change in the heading, and on turning the torch onto the vane, I found that it was right over, trying to put the self-steering rudder on. I thought at first it must be due to an exceptional load of sargasso weed caught astride of the self-steering rudder. When I went to the counter to examine it, I found the length of soft cord connecting the vane to the self-steering rudder had parted, the same cord that I had renewed for the same cause only recently. I cursed it and went to hunt for something tougher. Gypsy Moth began playing up, coming up to the eye of the wind with sails flogging, even when I tried to balance the ship's rudder with a piece of shock cord. I was scurrying to and fro like a fevered mouse hunting for crumbs, and when I had a collection of cord together and went back to the counter, I finally found the real trouble. Something had pushed the skeg rudder unit astern and bent the pillar between it and the vane unit above. At the same time, a screwed-in sleeve inside the pillar had become unscrewed or been forced out onto the gear below and was chewing up the steel parts of that, incidentally cutting the skeg rudder cord and at the same time being crushed, bent and cut about itself. I didn't know what this screwed-in sleeve was intended for, perhaps just for strengthening, and it looked as if the self-steering gear might still be made to work if I could cut or get rid of the protruding piece of sleeve. My extra-large screwdriver would make no impression on it at all. I fetched the hacksaw from the fore cabin and tried to saw the sleeve off, but in the dark I could not see what was happening and the submerged parts of the skeg rudder kept swinging in the slipstream and interfering with the hacksaw. After several failed attempts to saw or prise the protruding sleeve away, I decided it was not on in the dark and that the whole skeg rudder unit would have to be unshipped and brought inboard so that I could clearly assess what the total damage was and what could be done about it, if anything. I certainly would not be able to make good the 800 miles to Horta in my estimated five days if I could only keep Gypsy Moth sailing in the right direction when I was at the helm, and even achieving some sort of balance with a lashed helm would add two or perhaps more days to the voyage. I decided to turn in and sleep on it, after doing the best I could to set Gypsy Moth on a heading, but determined that after I had trimmed her as well as I could, I would leave her to do what she liked. It was more important to get some sleep, so that I could start on the job in daylight with a fresh brain. By now, I had been working at the self-steering gear for two hours, and the cabin looked like a junk shop outhouse, strewn with tools, cordage, bottles of paraffin, hurricane lamps, oil skins, life-saving harness, and just to make the scene more dreary, a pile up in the galley of about two days washing up. My sleeping bag was a comfortable bolt hole from it all. 
I did wake up a few times in the night when Gypsy Moth began to pay off downwind, as I could tell by the sound of the sails, whereupon I gave the lee tiller line and pulled from my bunk and went to sleep again. As it turned out, at dawn, Gypsy Moth had kept a fairly good heading, about twenty degrees farther off the wind than was ideal, and at the cost of my having hardened in two of the sails to balance the trim, which slowed her down somewhat. I was up at 0500 and started work at once dismantling all the lines and preventers so that I could get the skeg rudder assembly on board. I drew the main axle by knocking it through its bearing with a big screwdriver and a maul, but then I found the rudder top frame jammed in its parent frame above. However, by hitching a line to the skeg shaft near the waterline and pulling on that, I managed to free the skeg rudder unit from the frame above. It dropped down and away astern with a rush in the slipstream, but after that, things went better. The unit was heavy and cumbersome, and it was a tricky operation with the slipstream trying to wrench it from my grasp while I manhandled it up onto the counter and struggled to work it up over the pulpit onto the deck. I only had one accident when I let one of my fingers get pinched between two moving parts. This spattered the deck considerably, but a plaster dressing and some surgical spirit applied externally, with a good shot of brandy applied internally, dealt with that. At last, the ten-foot-long unit was lying on the counter and lashed down. I sawed the extruded sleeve off, once again blessing Bart for getting me such a fine hacksaw. I marvelled at the way the steel frame had been chewed up by the extruded sleeve. It seemed miraculous that no essential, irreplaceable part had been smashed. The tube standard or pillar was considerably bent at the bottom and the rudder assembly cocked up, say 15 degrees, but I thought it would work all right if it did not get exposed to another blow or load such as must have caused the damage. Later, I came to the conclusion that the cause of the trouble must have been an exceptionally heavy pile-up of sargasso weed on the fore-edge of the skeg. The pressure of a cartload of this stuff straddling the skeg with gypsy moth sailing at seven knots would be destructive. I was lucky the damage was no worse. When I handled the skeg rudder assembly back into the water, the slipstream again swept it out horizontally astern, and I found it was as much as I could hold. I could see that I would never be able to coax it into position and hold it there while I refitted the axle unless I took some way off Gypsy Moth. So I tacked, leaving the big jibber back which effectively stopped her, and then I got the unit into place and drove the axle through with my maul. The operation had taken three hours. I felt immensely relieved and lucky that things were no worse. I collected all the tools and gear together and got Gypsy Moth sailing under the control of the self-steering once more, and had the other half of the brandy, hot with lemon, for breakfast. On the 23rd, Gypsy Moth seemed to have the smell of the flesh pots of Horta in her nostrils. I had been taunted by the winds ever since I gave up my forecast of five days to Ilefael, but now she was galloping along. I only hoped it was in the right direction because the weather was too thick for any glimpse of the sun or chance of a sunfix. However, there was a radio beacon at Horta which I had picked up and that put Gypsy Moth to windward of Fael, which was what I wanted. Soon I could see the mount, 473 feet high at the south end of Horta Harbour, behind which lies the whaling station, and I started reducing sail as I ran down towards the end of the mole. Presently, along came the pilot launch, and a minute or two later, Jao de Faria, the chief pilot and our friend of 1960, when Sheila and I sailed in from New York in Gypsy Moth 3 after the first single-handed transatlantic race, was aboard, giving me a great hug. And there was Peter, the little friend of all yachtsmen, smiling on the pilot launch. It was like coming home after a long time away. Chapter 9. Knockdown I left Horta on the 30th of April. Joao took the helm until Gypsy Moth was in the Canal de Foyal. 
the channel between Fayal and Pico. Then he signalled to his pilot launch, which came and took him off. I was sad to leave Horta, although I was longing to be home again. All day it was slow going, but in fine weather, with gentle breezes. For a while in the evening, Gypsy Moth was becalmed and only sailed six miles over a four-hour period. In one way, I was contented enough to go slowly because I was in a lazy, listless mood, but I could not clear the archipelago of islands before dawn next morning, so I had very little sleep. I had the same trouble when leaving Horta in 1960 with Sheila, of not being able to settle down to a sleep until Graciosa was astern. At 06.30 the next morning I could see Praia, the town of Graciosa, on the northeast side of it, and at 0900 I noted that with the big runner boomed out to starboard, Gypsy Moth had a business-like press-on gait, with a slight roll to port, a gurgle of water along the hull as she rolled back, which gave a feeling of power and speed. Sunday, 2nd of May, noon. Run, fixed a fix, 115 miles. Sailed, 121.25. Distance to Plymouth, 1,091. Distance sailed since leaving Plymouth, 17,400. Nightfall came with heavy rain and poor visibility. I dropped the mizzen staysail, which was making a lot of noise, clanking and flapping, and seemed to be obstructing the airstream onto the headsails most of the time, and only pulling periodically itself. Gypsy Moth was playing her devilish trick, time after time, of imitating a steamer's engine beat, which never fails to make me apprehensive and nervy. Half an hour after midnight, I was woken by the change of movement of the boat and waves, to find Gypsy Moth heading south instead of northeast. The wind had veered, bang, from south to northwest, so Gypsy Moth was now headed into the seas raised by the southerly wind, which had been blowing all day. The movement was horrible jumping, twisting, snatching and rolling, I could not even stand in the cockpit without holding on to something. I was faced with getting the runner down, then the pole, then jibing and coming up to the wind. However, I plugged away, and it was not as bad as I had feared. I had to be very careful how I moved about, and it was a long job because of having to hang on to something all the time. Going up the mast, working at the heel of the pole, and then lowering the pole turned out the easiest part because I had things to hang on to there, I used the topping lift to lower the pole off the mast after I had freed it. The whole operation took two and a half hours. I changed the wind vane down to a smaller one, but it was decidedly not my night. By the time I had finished, Gypsy Moth was becalmed and aback, and I had the tiresome job of working her round to her proper heading as she bounced about on the old sea. When the wind came, I expected it to go back to the south so that I should have the joy of rigging the boom and all that once more. However... I decided to turn in. Gypsy Moth could do what she bloody well liked. I was chilled, shivery and seasick, and above all I was fed up with the extraordinary antics of the wind. Well that's all for today, I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly, and remember of course you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.